Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I have the great privilege today of having a conversation with Bishop Will Williman, who currently serves at Duke Divinity School as Professor of the Practice of Christian Ministry. We got to know him pretty well here in Alabama for a while. He was the Bishop of the North Alabama Conference of the United Methodist Church from 2004 to 2012, a person who graced the pulpit of Beeson Divinity School on numerous occasions to our great blessing. I want to ask you a technical question before we get into this new book you've written, and that is the fact okay. you're a bishop. In fact, you've written a book about a bishop. And am I right in thinking that United Methodist bishops are bishops for life, not just for a term of service? Uh, we are. However, I, I guess I, I question that. I I like, uh, like in, say, South African Methodism, a bishop is a bishop for a term, and then a bishop goes back to being a united uh, being a methodist preacher and i i sort of favor that sort of uh utilitarian pragmatic view of the episcopacy rather than the the kind of anglican catholic view that a bishop forever so yeah well you know i've been involved recently in this international methodist baptist dialogue which i've learned a lot oh yes i love the methodists on that dialogue i've learned so much one of the things i learned is that british methodists don't have bishops they do not this was an american invention uh, of methodist episcopacy uh, by francis asbury and others it the history of the methodist episcopacy has been rather contentious. It, it's been an idea, a practice that has had to uh, kind of continually uh, fight for itself and articulate itself uh, throughout the history of Methodism. Yeah. Uh, but one in which I enjoyed participating in for a time, and now I'm back teaching. Well, we want to talk today about one of your 70 books. Yes, I said 70, like the Septuagint, 70 people. Well, you have 70 <laughs> books. And uh, marvelous books that have blessed and enriched the church. We use them as textbooks here at Beeson and many, many other seminaries and schools do as well. But the book I want to talk about today, I think it's your most recent book. Uh, it's, yeah. Tell us a, the title and the origin of it because it's very much related to you and your story and your roots, isn't it? Uh, it is. Um, when I was one year old in Greenville, South Carolina, a lynching occurred a young man, Willie Earl, was taken from a jail in Pickens, South Carolina, nearby, and taken to the Greenville-Pickens border and uh, tortured to death by a gang of taxicab drivers who were seeking uh, rest revenge for the death of a, the stabbing death of a taxicab driver in Greenville. And Willie Earl was in jail related to that death, although he had never been charged. He was awaiting being charged. And um, I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. That occurred when I was a baby. It was about the biggest thing ever to happen in Greenville, South Carolina. attracted international attention. And there was a trial afterwards. Sadly, the like 23 men confessed to the crime, and all of them were acquitted by a Greenville jury. So it was kind of a double 
tragedy. I never heard about it. <laughs> I never heard about it until I was a sophomore at Walford College, and a uh, historian, a faculty member, mentioned, oh, Greenville. Uh, well, that's what they, were, they tell you about that lynching that happened uh, in Greenville? I said, lynching? And that really began a kind of lifetime fascination with and coming to terms with this lynching that occurred in my hometown and the aftermath that was never mentioned to me. And, you know, we, we think of lynching as sort of like in, in the era of slavery and things like this, and yet I'm talking to a person who was alive when this happened. And, of course, it does uh, happen yeah. even more recently than that in our history. Absolutely. The history of lynching, and by the way, there's a wonderful project, a historical commemorative project going on uh, in Alabama and Montgomery right now on the history of lynching, but lynching uh, has a long, uh, uh, sad history in America, and uh, it particularly, uh, lynching was part of uh, Reconstruction and all, uh, and it, it kind of exploded in the 20s and 30s. This was South Carolina's so-called last lynching. Part of the the horror of this was it occurred right at the end of World War II, and some accounts of the time noted the irony that here we had just gotten back from fighting a war against the Nazis and then have something like this happen back here in America. The victim, uh, Willie Earl, all, his two brothers both served in the armed services. Uh, Willie could not because he was an epileptic. But yeah, lynching, uh, sadly, is a part of American history. In fact, many have noted, some have noted, that capital punishment today appears to be somehow linked to American America's history of lynching in that the states, mostly in the southeast, Texas, that do lots of capital punishment in the 20th century and the 21st are the states that had the most lynching. And so it, it's an evil that kind of continues to be with us in different forms. Now, I want you to talk a little bit about the sermon that um, Holly Lynn preached. Who was Holly Lynn? In this little town of Pickens where the lynching occurred, just a couple of blocks from the jail was a Methodist parsonage. And in that Methodist parsonage was a recent graduate of Yale Divinity School, a man who a few months after he arrived at the church, the church burned, the historic church in Pickens. And on top of that, his wife died giving birth to their first child. And so here is a man with an infant uh, he was caring for in a church meeting in the agriculture room of the local high school. And when he heard about the lynching, Hawley immediately moved into action. He called a, a public meeting, and he got prominent Baptists and prominent Presbyterians and all to come to the meeting. And the meeting was broken up when a crowd from a nearby town where a lynching had occurred some years before, came in and broke up the meeting, uh, shouting all kind of epithets. Hawley left the meeting, and he was advised by some people, okay, son, you've done what you can. You need to leave this alone. You've got other matters to see after. Well, Hawley then immediately started working on a sermon. And uh, two weeks later, he preached the sermon, and the title of the sermon was called Who Lynched Willie Earl? And... Uh, Basically, the theme of the sermon uh, was, uh, who lynched Willie Earl? Well, we all know who lynched Willie Earl. They confessed to it, and it was these citizens from another county. But then Hawley paused for effect in his sermon, and he said, we lynched Willie Earl. Every good God-fearing person 
that has put up with racial segregation, that has made jokes, that has said terrible things about our sisters and brothers who are Negroes, we lynched with Earl. And I say that it could be the most powerful sermon ever preached in South Carolina Methodism. And Hawley preached it. And I think it's just sort of amazing, not only that the sermon was preached, and sad to say, I could find only in all of South Carolina, uh, at least printed, uh, two other sermons where the lynching was even mentioned afterwards, both by Baptists, by the way. And not only did Hawley preach this, but he preached it beyond great sort of personal conditions he was in. And by the way, he preached it and uh, he couldn't recall later receiving any negative pushback from the congregation. And in fact, when a history was written of Grace United Methodist Church in Pickens many years later, uh, it was the only sermon included in full in the church's history. So it's a remarkable piece of homiletics for a number of reasons. Now, I'm a Southern Baptist. You grew up in the Methodist Church of the Southern, used to be the Southern Methodist. You're United Methodist Church now. But your roots are in South Carolina, in the South. And talk about what, what it's like to belong to these really major denominations, major in the sense of there are a lot of us. We, 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 we may not be much, but we're many. And so what's it like on this issue in particular uh, to be a Methodist from the South, a Baptist from the South? Oh, I think it. Uh, we have we got a history. I mean, we got a past, and I think it's important to know that past as much as you can uh, to deal with it. In fact, I have come to believe that being a white Southerner that that's an important spiritual situation and a grand opportunity to plumb the depths of God's uh, mercy and grace. One of the quotes that I love, I got from Gary Wills, who's not from the South, but Gary Wills, historian, and I worked this for everything it was when I was bishop in Alabama. But Gary Wills says, if you're a white male Southerner, and I am all three, over 50, yeah, there's no way to convince you people can't change. And I love that quote because, as Wills went on to say, if, if you're white male Southern over 50, uh, you've experienced radical transformation in your society, in your own life, in your soul, among your family and friends. And I think as, a, as an evangelical Protestant, uh, which I consider myself to be, race is a grand opportunity uh, to show what God can do. And uh, I said, you know, I'm sorry if you don't believe in the transforming grace of God, if you don't believe in the radically life-changing power of the evangelical conversion experience, you need to look at me. <laughs> look at my I said, you would not have wanted to know me, particularly on the issue of race, before God, uh, Jesus Christ got busy. In the book, I tell a story about going to a church conference in Lake Junaluska, which is kind of Methodist Mecca, and uh, rooming with an African-American guy my age, 16 years old, who was from my hometown and a Methodist and who worshiped in a church four blocks from my church, but could not enter my church because of his race. And uh, I believe that that young man was my Ananias to Paul, uh, was my, uh, you know, uh, I believe God used him 
uh, and his courage to work uh, a transformation in me. And so behind every Southern Christian who has made significant turnarounds on race, I think there is a God who is busy transforming us and sanctifying us. So Wonderful. Thanks be to God. That's true. Now, I, you know, these that ought to warm a Baptist conversionist heart. I love it. So. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm a Wesley loving Baptist anyway. It doesn't take much. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> but, I, you know, these old ghosts that you're talking about, uh, they really are hard uh, to die. They just linger on. This past summer, the Southern Baptist Convention, my denomination, which mm. was born in 1845 in a crisis about slavery, uh, had a hard time actually passing a resolution condemning what is called the alt-right. Now, we did do it uh, after we got past a, a few mm-hmm. parliamentary snafus. I'm glad we did. But we shouldn't have had to take a day and a half to debate that and sort of back forward. And uh, You know, the, the, yeah. these, these ghosts die I, hard. I do, I do affirm it was debated. It was a painful conversation. But I say in my book, uh, we got to have some painful conversations. And and by the way, as you know, I mean, it's a claim of the church that Jesus Christ enables us to talk about things the rest of the world can't talk about. And uh, it, it that is sad. And it's uh, I also noted in the book, when you're a Southerner, you also become suspicious of certain things people say. You know, you grow up hearing politicians say like, it's it's not about race, it's about strict constitutional interpretation, it's about states' rights, it's about preserving our heritage, it's about blah, 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 blah. But I think you, one gift of being a Southerner is to be able to say, no, I, I bet it's about race. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard this before. Yeah. And... Uh, and I remember growing up in Greenville, South Carolina, and in the ba- in a Baptist church, and the the church said it, it's not about not receiving Negroes into our fellowship. It, it's about uh, the beautiful Baptist principles of of congregational autonomy. Say, and I remember the preacher very publicly said, "I will not have you besmirch the noble." idea and history of congregational autonomy by invoking that to cover your views of, of race. And and I think, uh, you know, the churches need to keep pushing that. In fact, I think during that discussion, I was thinking of the churches, and I wish there were more. The churches, by their composition and by their life together, are becoming a haven, a place where Americans can do something that America finds very hard to do, and that is to uh, really work at race. And uh, I had a church in Alabama that was a new church start. They were having difficulty, and then the pastor told me one Sunday a biracial couple showed up. The next Sunday, they brought some friends who were a biracial couple and their children, and he said, we're up to about eight biracial couples now. One of them drives 60 miles to be here each Sunday. And he said, I believe the church is missing an evangelical opportunity. Americans, some Americans are convicted and in pain over race and uh, are looking for a church 
that can make good on its promises and and be an experiment can be can show what the grace of God can do. And so I want to affirm those Baptist churches and others that that are working at that. It's a sacred work. Now, this sermon that you write about here in this book uh, by uh, Holly Lynn was preached way back in the 1940s when you were a baby. And and we're now talking in the year 2017. Uh, imagine what it's going to be like in the year 2067 if the world goes on that long and Jesus tarries, as we Southern Baptists say. What's it going to be like when this topic comes back around again? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I guess say from recent experience and all, I, I, America has a long history of telling itself, okay, our our white supremacy and racism and all is history. We, we've at last dealt with it. Well, I hope and pray that God's grace will be allowed to work in us and that we will be quite different. On the other hand, while we're waiting to respond to God's grace, America is changing so rapidly. I have thought, I, I said to a an acquaintance of mine who is an avid uh, Republican and an avid supporter of our president, uh, I said to him, well, I want y'all to have a good time because I believe this could be the last election in American history where white people will be able to determine the outcome of the election. I just think no political party will be able to pull that off again. And so our, our world is changing, and some of those changes are by the grace of God and I, I think it'll be to the church's grand shame if the church misses this opportunity to point to these changes and say, oh, that's evidence of a living God. That's evidence that God is at work among us. When the governor of Alabama, former governor, was was busy advocating all these harsh immigration laws uh, supported by Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, I said, hey, we're Methodists. The Methodist church is declining in every area except among one ethnic group, Hispanics, Spanish-speaking Methodists. You cannot build a wall because that's keeping Methodists from growth. We need growth badly. You've got to let in, for some reason known only to the Lord, uh, there are a lot of Spanish-speaking people who are attracted to Methodism. Well, I think, and as evangelicals, you know, our our responsibility is to be sure that the kingdom of God is proclaimed without boundaries, without borders, uh, without limitations, without putting any racial, gender, whatever limitation on Jesus's ability to save everybody. And there's an Armenian statement for you. So there you go. <laughs> well, you know, I remember when you made that statement here in Alabama about immigration, and, and it didn't please everybody, not even all of your fellow Methodists, as I remember. I know. It's just a shame. I try to be so nice. I don't know why. And um, <laughs> But I admired your leaning into that issue in a way that wasn't entirely comfortable to everybody. But uh, it was— it was. Oh, well, good. Good. And I, I think uh, I'd love it if Christians— I don't. I'm. I'm not all that interested in politics myself. But I. I think Christians. It's great for Christians as we enter into these discussions to say now, how can we talk in ways that show forth what God has done in our lives and in the Christian faith? In fact, how can we discuss these issues in ways that the world will find just baffling, that the world won't understand and say, that that's fine, I can understand you don't understand this because you're not a Christian, and therefore you don't read these situations the way we do. 
But I tried in my book to talk about race. I, I tried to learn from secular writers about race and white supremacy and all, and privilege and bias. I, I tried to learn from all that. But I also tried to write a very unashamedly, specifically Christian book about this issue. And I think it's a challenge, like, about race, because, I mean, I don't think race is a biblical category. I think it's a, it's an enlightenment kind of godless way of labeling human beings and all. However, I think race, created not by Scripture but by uh, the enlightenment, I think race has become a, a sin that that we got to talk about and we got to deal with. And that, so I, I, I say at the Divinity School, uh, I think our dean has proclaimed this is our year of diversity or something. And, and I said, I, I, you know, diversity is not really one of our words. I bet saying this is our year of sin and forgiveness. And uh, white supremacist people, do we have good news for you? Yeah. <laughs> God has not excluded even you. And, uh, and that, well, okay. That's great. You know, I think you knew uh, my great, great friend, John Leith, my great friend, a little crusty around the edges, but, you know, he wrote a book one time with a wonderful subtitle called What the Church Can Say That No One Else Can Say. Oh, that's wonderful. It's a great title. It's what you're talking about. Uh, Can we say something? Do we have a message? And, and you know, I, I admit in the book, I said, this is a prejudiced Christian comment. I don't know what America is going to do about race. I'm seeing much evidence America's willing to own up to and come to terms with that. I don't know what a non-Christian does about this. I guess all you can do is to be in denial and lie to and all. Um, but as Christians, we believe in a God who forgives. Uh, we believe in in the church as a community of truth and truth-telling. And we believe that even in a country built on racism and uh, and all, we believe even there, God can truly create a truthful, good place. And in fact, I think the church, you know, we ought to see ourselves every Sunday as a kind of test of did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead and return to the very people who betrayed him the first time? And and then g- gave them everything he had and said, get out of here and don't limit yourself to national borders. I, I want the whole thing. I want it all. That To kind of restore the adventure of discipleship, uh, the adventure of being faithful to Jesus Christ. And uh, so I wish we could see racism not as simply uh, an embarrassment or a problem to be overcome, but an invitation to say, let's just see how deep the mercy of God goes. Let, let's let's do a test on it. Okay, so. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Bishop Will Williman. We've been talking about his most recent book, Who Lynched Willie Earl? It's available from Abington Press on Amazon.com, wherever you get books. I commend it to you. God bless you, and thank you so much. Thank you, Timothy. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. 
We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.